The Lord be with you. My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here and also a husband and brother and a son. And I'm a dreamer. I often dream crazy dreams, and I had one this morning right before the alarm went off, and it was that there I was standing before you to bring the message, and there was some kind of barrier between us. Uh, it was clear. You could see through it, and I could see through it, but whatever I said, you, you didn't listen. You weren't hearing me, and I was trying to get this thing tore down and climb over it or move it, or I... I I don't know how long I worked at this. It must have been most of the night because I'm exhausted today. I don't know. I'm sure I was subconsciously processing the message because the message, especially the scripture reading we have today, talks about a wall, a barrier between people and about how Christ breaks that barrier down. And for that, I'm very grateful because I think these kinds of walls that we're going to talk about they, we can't do it on our own. We could work at it all night and all week and all month and all year and the walls still wouldn't come down. But God says, I'm going to take that wall down. So I want you to listen for that by turning to our scripture lesson for today. It's from Ephesians chapter 2. So if you're in your Bible, you're in the New Testament, you're going to go through the Gospels and start to get to Paul's little letters. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you get to one of those, you're close. Ephesians chapter 2. And there's Bibles in the chair if you didn't bring one with you, or you can open up your phone and go to the app and open up a Bible. It's great if you can read along. Ephesians chapter 2. While you're looking that up, I forgot. I'm I'm also getting more forgetful like Alan. I think we have a little competition to see who can be most forgetful. I forgot my name tag again. And I forgot my clicker. Okay. Ephesians 2, starting with verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit." Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is God's word and it's true and we can rely on it. Do you know what year the first selfie was taken? Take a stab at that. You want to guess what year? 
Okay, some of you are making a commitment telling your neighbors, you got, an, you got a date in mind? 1950? No, it was actually earlier than 1950. Yeah, the first known selfie, and the guy actually used the term selfie, was 1839. And the guy who took the picture was a photographer named Robert Cornelius. And in order for him to get his selfie proper, he had to sit still for three minutes in order for the film to develop. So there, it's been going on for a long time. But it was actually 2013 when the word selfie was added to the Oxford Dictionary, which I guess is the standard for when a word becomes a word. And so it's not been that long that we have become very familiar with selfies. Apparently, there are about a thousand selfies posted to Instagram every 10 seconds. That's just Instagram. That's just the ones that get posted, which actually comes out to about 93 million selfies a day just on Instagram. About 1.5 billion turn the camera toward themselves on a regular basis. That's a lot of selfies. The estimate now is that for anybody living in this day, that they're going to take about 25,000 selfies in their lifetime. That's a lot of selfies. Do you think there's any consequences from this? I'm here to tell you one, because I'd like to give you the latest information about stuff. There's actually a physical consequence from all these selfies. It's a medical diagnosis that is known as selfie elbow. Okay, so just be careful, because if you're taking 40 or 50 of these a day, it's an awkward position your elbow's in, apparently. And now the doctors are actually discovering that there is a problem with this medically, and they're having to treat people for selfie elbow. Okay, there's a psychological consequence also. They're finding that the taking of too many selfies, and there's still a whole lot of debate about how many is too many, leads to self absorption. Now this doesn't take a rocket science to figure out. If you take too many pictures of yourself, you're too absorbed about yourself, right? And part of the, the stat on this is that the, the taking of selfies has increased by 17,000% since 2013. So that means we're just getting more and more self-absorbed. And that means that we are probably becoming self-preoccupied and more self-centered and more self-obsessed. Self-absorption, by the way, is not usually perceived as a good thing. It's a preoccupation with yourself, usually at the cost of paying attention to other people around us. So we become hyper-aware of our own feelings, but we don't pay attention to the feelings of anybody else. Self-absorbed individuals typically have a very narrow worldview and um, I refer to that as the, the bubble of self. And that extends about as far as you can hold your phone out. Now, if you have a selfie stick, of course, that gets a little bit farther. But this is the bubble of self. And it results in some other consequences. Some of these, I think, are communal. Now, I'm going out on a little bit of ledge here because I couldn't find anybody else who said this, but I'm going to make this connection. It seems like this bubble of self, this self-absorption that we find ourselves in, leads us to mistrust other people and mistrust institutions. I did find one fascinating graph which showed the 
decrease in trust that has come over the years. And these represent various institutions, including the church, the public school, Congress, which is the bottom line on this shelf, and uh, this graph if you're paying attention to it, that we kind of get to the point where we don't trust people and we don't trust anything that people are involved with. Now, this graph goes back 40 years, so this wasn't just from selfies, but it seems like that we have a growing distrust of other people and a growing self-absorption. This has led to kind of the culture we live in, which is very divisive. Does anybody ever see that? A culture that's divisive? That we just don't seem to be able to get along. So my theory is this. Actually, the bubble of self has been growing ever since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve were thinking only about themselves when they disobeyed God, and they created the bubble of self, and they disobeyed God. And ever since then, we've been living in a fallen world where we have become more and more self-absorbed and with less and less trust of each other and the institutions around us. This seems like it's a little bit of a problem, and I don't know just where this is going to end, but it seems to me like it might end if we could create a different identity or discover that we actually have a different identity, that our primary identity is not that of me as an individual, that it has nothing to do with myself. So that's what we want to talk about today, and this is going to help us understand how this transformation of the corridor could really accelerate. If we remove the bubble of self and recognize that our identity is actually fundamentally different. I'm going to just, there's a lot of places we could turn for this. I'm going to turn to one section of our scripture reading today to talk about this idea of identity. Ephesians 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you too are being built together, becoming a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Our identity in Jesus fundamentally changes who we are. It defines everything about our purpose, it defines our meaning, it explains our motivation, it shows us what will satisfy, it helps us understand our calling. Our identity in Jesus bursts the bubble of self and radically reorients our lives toward others. Our identity in Jesus is about community and living as part of a community. The Bible is abundantly clear about this. And I wanted to just look briefly at how this happens. First, an invitation. This is from Isaiah 55. Isaiah says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. All you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. This invitation in Isaiah 55 is an invitation that is extended to all people everywhere. 
You might read it this way. You all, or all you all, come. Anyone who wants, come. Come. Find out what satisfies. Come to the waters. Come eat and drink and be satisfied. Come and abide. You people. Isaiah was written to a people of God. And the invitation that Isaiah is giving to them is not that they should scatter and individualize and create a bubble of self. His invitation to them is come, be the people of God, and as the people of God, enjoy these blessings. When we read through the Bible, we recognize that this is not an an owner's manual for an individual. This is not like your guide to how to be a better self. This is a guide to how to be a better people. And we could go almost anywhere in Scripture and find this to be true. The Bible says, it's not all about me. It's about us. We are a people. It's hard for us sometimes to get this orientation straight when we're reading through Scripture because everything in our world is so oriented toward me and my individual choices and my individualism and to to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and make something of yourself. This is the culture that we live in. And if it's not just for me, then it's for people who are like me. And so let's get a bunch of like-minded people together, my tribe, people who are like me politically or racially or economically, people who have the same opinion as I do, my demographic. I think this stuff applies just to my demographic. But it's clear throughout Scripture that the Bible's vision is for a community that is radically different. And the invitations that it makes is to create this kind of community where every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people will come together as one. And this invitation is repeated over and over and over again so you get the idea that every people everywhere can become one people in Jesus. This is a beautiful vision. Listen to how this invitation gets played out in just one more passage, Luke 14. Jesus is meeting with some individuals and this is what he says to the host. He says, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. He's saying, don't just invite people from your own tribe. Don't just invite those that are like you already. Don't just limit your invitation, because this is what happens if you do, verse 12. If you do that, they'll invite you back, and you're going to be repaid. End of the story. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He's talking about building a different community. And the people who are listening to him say this, they know he's talking about something radically different. So they give some pushback. When one of those at the table heard him say this, he said back to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat in the feast of the kingdom of God. He's saying, I'm going to deflect this little story Jesus is telling, and hey, let's just talk about God's kingdom. Jesus, fine, okay, if you want to talk about God's kingdom, let's do that, he says. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent out his servant to tell all those who had been invited, come now, for everything is ready. But they all began to make excuses. 
The first said, I just bought a field, I must go and see it, please excuse me. Another one said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, I'm on my way to test them out, please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come, please excuse me. And the servant came back and reported to his master, and the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, he said, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. There's still room at the banquet table. So the master told the servant, go out to the roads and into the country and to the farms and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who invited will get a taste of my banquet. The kingdom is not a party that we throw where we just invite everyone who's exactly like us. The kingdom is a party where you go out into the highways and byways of life and you find everyone and you make the invitation. Come to the banquet. Come be part of the kingdom. This is God's invitation. This is the kind of community that Jesus wants to build, a community that breaks down barriers, a community that knocks down dividing walls, a community that removes hostility, a community that says everyone is welcome. Anyone can come, even people like us. Ephesians 2 again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Consequently, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. Through Jesus, everyone has access. Everyone can come in by one spirit. In Jesus, everyone is invited to draw near. This is how Jesus defines us. We're part of this kind of community where anyone can fit. We who were once dead in sin, we've been made alive in Christ. We were saved by grace, not by our works, not by anything we've done to earn it, by no merit of our own. He says, I give you this gift, you come. That same gift can be offered to everyone. No limits. Therefore, We pay attention whenever there's a therefore or consequently in Scripture because it's been building on what's before. So all before this, Paul has been talking about, you know, this gift of grace. Because of this gift of grace, therefore, we're part of a whole new family. Because of this gift of grace, consequently, we're no longer foreigners or strangers or aliens, outcasts, outsiders. We've been brought in. Consequently, we're fellow citizens, members of God's household. We're family and everybody can become family. Now, the first century followers of Jesus who were in Ephesus, who received this letter from Paul, when they heard this, they understood that this was radically different. It probably was kind of mind-blowing for them because these Jewish Christians had lived their entire life believing that they were God's chosen. They were God's special people, And because they were God's special people, they had lived their whole life, their whole history has been setting up barriers, setting up dividing walls, 
setting up ways to keep them out so that we could remain special, so that we could be God's special people. And for the Jews, there was no wider or taller barrier than their Jewishness. This made them unique. They were in and everyone else was out because they were chosen. This divide was huge. And Paul comes to them and he says, no more. No more barrier. In Jesus, anyone can belong. Consequently, from now on, all comparisons are out of order. Consequently, all hostility and judging is forbidden. Consequently, there's no longer us and them. Consequently, from this point forward, everyone who is in Jesus is family. That's our identity. Now, I don't know if you've stopped very often to think about how radically different this image of community is. I have been all week because I've been trying to figure out what to say to you. And I'm still not sure about its implications. What does it mean for us? Because as I look at community, the way it's defined often in our world, it's very much my niche, my tribe, my demographic. It just seems like that's how communities define nowadays. And so I can get along really well with people who see it exactly like me, but I can't get along with anybody else. This seems to be describing a completely different kind of community where we still have our differences, where we still are very diverse people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every people, and yet we're one. And I even going out the door this morning was lamenting to Mary. I, I don't know what the application is yet. I don't know how this looks in our community. But it seems like it should be very radical, mind-blowing difference. Can we imagine the difference it would make if we lived in a community that was not divided at all? What would that look like? One of the guys I was reading, commentator, made some things that caught my imagination. He said this, can we imagine a Ku Klux Klan member sitting at the banquet table with an African-American? Can we imagine a neo-Nazi sitting at the banquet table with a Jew? Can we imagine a police officer sitting at the banquet table with a criminal? Can we imagine an abused person sitting at the table with an abuser? Can we, what kind of radical community can you imagine? If there was no dividing walls, no barriers, if in Jesus we were one people, what would that look like? Call me crazy, but can we imagine Republicans and Democrats (laughs) sitting at the same banquet table? Not after this week's thing. If we imagine some of the radicalness of this scenario, then maybe it helps us start to imagine just even what that kind of community could look like here in the corridor 
or maybe in your neighborhood, or maybe in your school or your workplace. Maybe you see places where there's division, where there's dividing walls, where there's hostility. Can you start to imagine what would it look like if we could bring a community, and if we could model a community that was not divided over any of these things? That though we are diverse in individual people, we are still able to live together in community. That seems like that'd be a pretty revolutionary, radical thing. Can we imagine this kind of unity and reconciliation in our own families? Maybe for some of us that might be hard. Maybe a husband and a wife who are heading toward divorce reconcile so that they're no longer at odds with each other. Maybe a kid who once could not talk to her parents at all reconciles so that their relationship is restored. Maybe the bully and the bullied reconciled so that they're no longer at hostility with each other. Maybe the boss and the co-worker, maybe the friends who are at odds, maybe it's simple things, even within our congregation where we are at odds and we say, you know what, this difference doesn't make any difference because you know what our identity is? We're family. We're one in Jesus. I think it could happen. I think if it does happen, it will transform the corridor. Do any of you remember the movie Babe? The movie about the little pig who thought he was a dog? Remember that? There was a little thing repeated in that movie repeatedly in this battle between the sheep and the sheepdogs. And the narrator would chime in at many different points. He referred to this battle and he said, Everyone knew the sheep were stupid and there was nothing anybody could do about it. There was nothing to convince the dogs otherwise. And then later he would break in and he would say, everyone knew the dogs were stupid, but there, there was nothing they could do about it. They could never convince the sheep otherwise. And this was the substance of the battle. Of course, by the end of the movie, we realize that the sheep and the sheepdogs are both intelligent in their own way. And once they get to know each other, they burst their bubble of self... And they get along, and they create this radical community. I would like to think we could imagine something different than just a bunch of people living as individuals, taking pictures of their self and living with their own bubble of self. What if we learned to live as a community that was radically diverse and loved each other as though we really were family? I think if that was the case, it would transform the corridor. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners or strangers, but you are fellow citizens, members of God's family. Dear Lord, we come to you today and I give you thanks for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are at work to Uh, renew our identities and reshape our identities. And so we ask that that your Holy Spirit would come and continue this work that you've started, and we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.